to XL and Bash Street. It's been way too long since I've done one of these shows. Been very busy with other ventures, but I'm back. And we are back with the Wrestling from the 80s series as XL makes its return. So you know what that means. I am joined yet again by the man who put together all the videotapes for the Wrestling of the 80s set on his website years and years ago. The one, the only, the legendary John McAdam. John, welcome back. It has been far too long since I have done this show. Good to be here, Chris. Yeah, I think you were the last one to do the last Exile, so you'll be you'll be the first one to do uh, the Exile in this comeback here. So uh, very cool. And just so everyone knows, um, I am currently putting together uh, an archive of of part of the website I used to have up. Uh, it should be completed. I'm I'm gunning for January first, twenty twenty. If you're interested in taking a look, uh, just hit me up on Twitter or Facebook. I'm easy to find. All right, well that's great. Yeah, keep me from go to the archive. But here I am on on the the uh, web archive on the Wayback Machine, and uh, we're gonna pick up where we left off on uh, Wrestling from the '80s, Volume Eleven. And uh, we begin with something that we talked about before on this on this show and on the shows we've done. And well, you know, I guess we'll talk about it real quick again. You started this off with the WFIA Tag Team of the Year angle with Eddie Gilbert and Tommy Rich, which uh, one of the most legendary angles in the history of Memphis. You know, to- Eddie and Tommy had broken up their team before this, um, but they win this Tag Team of the Year award given by the WFIA, who was in town for their annual convention, and. Uh, you know, Eddie was running down Tommy Rich, and Rich came out of the out of the back and beat the hell out of Eddie, just bloodied him up, something fierce, one of the biggest blade jaws you'll ever see. And then Eddie comes back out crying and apologizing, saying he's sorry, you know, very convincing. Tommy comes out, hugs Eddie, and then Eddie just beats the shit out of him, and Tommy does one of his great blade jobs, and Lance is awesome and all this and everything involved in this angle. Just one of the, one of the best angles in Memphis history, one of the best angles of the uh, entire decade, I thought. So uh, real quick, uh, you, you know, your thoughts on this. Well, I had followed Memphis Wrestling through the magazines. I had seen that uh, Eddie and Tommy were the new fabulous ones. Um, I personally thought that was too small a role for Tommy Rich at the time. I hadn't really caught up in the idea that, hey, Tommy had already peaked in like 80, 81, and he was kind of rolling downhill. Uh, To me, he was just Tommy Rich, former NWA champion. He could come back to Georgia any day and and dominate the territory. I, I had figured out yet that that's not the way it was anymore and um so i I read about this tag team in the magazines i was a little bit less than impressed i i saw tommy as a a star if not a superstar and i saw eddie as this guy he used to get beat up in the wwf so what's tommy doing with this guy and i was aware that they broke up i was aware that eddie had turned heel but I had no idea how it happened. And when I first got that tape of, of Memphis wrestling, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. That was such a phenomenal angle. Um, and you're right. Eddie was, was so convincing in his role, you know, coming out crying, Lance, I've been such a jerk. I, I can't believe what I've done, all that. And, and the blood in the angle was amazing. I mean, it was just with Eddie. It was an incredibly bloody angle. And then I believe the exact words I used was, and then the Tommy Rich blood bomb goes off because <laughs> Tommy was one of the best bladers in the business. And this was an all timer for him. And I mean, the floor was just drenched with blood by the time these guys were done. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just a classic angle. And yeah, you would get, you know, some blood on on Memphis television, but this is, this went to a whole nother level right here. I mean, this was like Puerto Rico. <laughs> There's yeah. so much blood spilling in the studio on this one. And, you uh, know, yeah, it's just great stuff. I, I remember seeing the um, the Sergeant Slaughter versus Pat Patterson alley fight, which was just ridiculous. Slaughter doing that blade job. And then, now you've got two guys doing what Slaughter did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Tommy had already done a big time blood angle in Memphis, uh, you know, four years earlier with his mother. You know, you know, that whole angle there when Jimmy Valiant, you know, and Tojo beat the shit out of him and he wore that white shirt and he just yeah. gushed all over it. So, uh, now you see, I hadn't seen that angle yet. Okay. 
Right. I mean, I, I'd read about it, but I hadn't seen it or, or seen pictures or anything. Yeah. I mean, to me, this was that 84 angle, which I, I saw, I think, summer or fall of 87 for the first time, and I was blown away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll move on. To, and there's a lot of Japanese wrestling on this tape. And uh, the first match is Terry Funk versus Stan Hansen from All Japan. A great brawl. You gave it four stars. You know, it... it these two guys, you know, they didn't have very many singles matches against each other. And really the main ones happened in all Japan, but wouldn't have been awesome if these two would have had like a series of matches in the United States. It would have been totally awesome. I mean, and one thing, you know, the, the after magazines did not cover the Jap- J- the Japan promotions at all. And at the time, the after magazines were my only, you know, they were, they were my only newspaper. It, it, you know, that was all you had. And I, I would wonder, like, I would see Terry Funk as not that big a star, you know, pre-NWA title run. I would wonder what happened with Stan Hansen, like, why he wasn't a bigger star. Oh, I don't know, because they were making me- mega money in Japan. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you're right on the, the Japanese wrestling part. I mean, the Aftermags, you, the only, like, real coverage you would get is either in like uh inside wrestling when they did their uh roll call champions where you see who the current champions were of the Japanese promotions maybe uh some you know pieces on guys who are on tour or something like that but yeah there was really no coverage in the 80s seriously of Japanese wrestling and then you would have like the American wrestlers that would go over there and spend time over there and you wouldn't know what what was going on. They just disappeared. But no, they're in Japan, made, like you said, making big money. You know, and, and Hanson Hanson's one of those guys who wasn't working American wrestling promotions on a regular basis. He just popped in and out of different places. You know, mainly Georgia. But uh, yeah, I mean, you wonder, wow, where's Stan Hanson at these days? Oh, he's just in Japan. You know, having these great matches against everybody over there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would wonder why Bruiser Brody wasn't a bigger star. But in in fairness. To the After Magazines, they ran a column on Japanese wrestling, and at the end, they said, look, you know, if you, the reader, are interested, you'd like to see more of this, drop us a line. They did not get a single letter. Zero. Wow. Not one person wrote wow. and said, I, yeah, I like this. That's crazy. I didn't I didn't know that. That's what, that's, I mean, yeah, I, it was, I, uh, sports I can understand, kind of understand, though, because I put my mindset of the American wrestling fan in those days, and like your your got your American wrestling fans, but they really didn't care about Japanese wrestling. A lot of them in that era. It, that that I mean that whole thing started with you know the sheet readers more than yeah. anything else, and, and it just branched out from there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I that's when I first learned about it. When I started getting the Observer in '87, and they're talking about you know Ricky Choshu is jumping promotion, he's doing this, doing that. I'm like. Who? What? I don't know anything about this, but you know, it was brand new to me, and I grew to get, you know, to get the tapes. I always needed to know. Like, I wouldn't get a Japanese tape unless I'm like, look, I need a match listing because I'm not just going to know who these guys are. And if I don't know who they are, it's no good. And I eventually learned who everyone was. It took a while, but you know, everyone was brand new to me, with the exception of the Americans and Antonio Inoki. Like I didn't even know who Ricky Choshu was. He was this guy who wrestled in Madison Square Garden once. You know? Yeah. Well, one guy who did uh, come over here and kind of make a name for himself, and we talked about before on this show, in, in that role was Tiger Mask. And we have yes. Two, and we have two Tiger Mask matches in a row here. Uh, one against Black Tiger, of course, supposed to be his evil brother, Mark Rocco, and that was a three and three quarter star match. And then against Steve Wright, father of Alex Wright, in a uh-huh. three star match. And Tiger Mask, you know, came over for WWF in, in the late 82 and really impressed the fans. You know, had the famous TV match with Masaido, you know, had other matches against other guys like Jose Estrada, Eddie Gilbert, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, he, he got over, but. This guy who kind of became disenchanted with professional wrestling in the next year, but he's someone where I think a lot of people, newer wrestling fans, don't get how important this guy was. Uh, Can you explain the importance of Satoru Sayama, Tiger Mask? I mean, if, if Tiger Mask went out there today, he would be just another guy on 205. But 
1982, when he first came here, we, especially the WWF audience, had never seen anything like that before. He was doing things that were were literally unimaginable. I mean, just the not only what he was doing, but the speed he was doing it at. And we just never seen anything like that. I mean, if you haven't seen it, uh, dear listener, check out the Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid match at Madison Square Garden, and just the pop it gets. I mean, people were. I mean. The word blown away gets used redundantly. The fans were blown away by these two. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was something completely different from what they seen because early 80s WWF, you know, while, you know, it had its, its good stuff, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was kind of slow and plotting, you know, yes. especially, especially your undercards. And then you see these guys come in and just like, whoa, <laughs> you know, it just it, 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 it impressed the, the fans. In a lot of ways, and Black Tiger's another guy who did that. You know, years later, a couple years later, in, in, in late '84, with uh, the Cobra in Madison yeah. Square Garden, and uh, we got a, a Cobra match. Is next Cobra versus Asama Terenishi, a three and a half star match was followed following those matches. But Cobra and Black Tiger became a kind of a famous match because it was on Best of WF Volume One yes. on, the, on the Coliseum Video, which. I know. I mean, I used to rent that tape a lot, and I remember watching that match <laughs> a lot because, I mean, that's one of the first wrestling videotapes, and that match being on there, that got a lot more eyes on it than you know other matches did, just because of that reason. Yeah. Two quick things. Number one, you know, going back to Tiger Mask and Madison Square Garden, if you were wowed by Jimmy Snuka flying around, you you have literally not seen anything yet in terms of flying. Number two, as far as that videotape goes, it's all about scarcity. It used to be that we would get. Uh, I mean, I would literally get an hour of wrestling per week. Then as the 80s went on, it went up to like four or five hours a week. Well, now I can go to the video store and rent this tape and watch wrestling whenever I wanted to. And I made a copy of that tape, by the way. Oh, I did too. And, <laughs> That's what you did. I rented it once and then watched it a bunch of times. That's but, what you, know, you did. You had the two VCRs, you know, and uh -huh. you made copies. Now – they made it hard for us there, and uh, uh, you know, for a time period when they had uh, the the block on there, where the you know the picture would go dark and stuff like macrovision. They would make it hard on you there for a little while, but uh, but yeah, I mean that was what you did. You rented the tape, you copied it, you took the tape back to your video store, but you had your own copy for for, for your own storage. Oh my! I mean, I, I had one VCR, and the the video store that I rented tapes from would would rent video cassette players. And what a surprise! But once a month, I would show up renting a video cassette player, all in a stack of tapes. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember that. I mean, yeah, that if you didn't have your own, you know, VCR or whatever, you could rent one from the store. I mean, that's just. That's crazy to think about, but VCRs were expensive back then. We talked about this before, you know, v VCRs, video, blank video tapes. I mean, people don't know how lucky they got it now with uh, blank DVDs costing, you know, as little as they do. I mean, you can get, you know, 25, you can get a, a hundred for $25. I mean, it's oh, just yeah. crazy to think about what you can get these days. And, uh, you know, DVD players, you know, and Blu-ray players are so cheap what they are with VCRs used to be crazy, you know, in oh, yeah, 1980s I mean, money. The, the first VCR I bought was a scratch and dent uh, formal, former rental. I think I got it for $129 and, you know, this was summer of 85 and I bought my first new one in 86 for $300 of 1986 money, which I bet is about $700 now. And the tapes were expensive. Yeah. Blank indeed. tapes. Exactly. They were six dollars of nineteen eighty six money each. <laughs> yeah. So crazy. Crazy money. And now right. I can watch thousands and thousands of hours <laughs> of wrestling on this thing that uh I mean about the size of a deck of cards. <laughs> I mean and you can you can watch anything any anytime, anywhere for you know, in your comfort of your own home. It's crazy. Yeah, or in the car, or at a restaurant, yeah. whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, unthinkable back in the day. I know it. All right, and we have more Japanese matches here, but with uh, people that you would know. Dynamite Kid's up next. We have Dynamite Kid against Kunai Kobayashi, three and three-quarter stars. 
Dynamite and Davy Boy teaming up against the Cobra and Black Tiger as a tag team, in which you said really great match, all kinds of wild innovative spots, four and a half stars. And Dynamite Kid versus the Cobra, four star match. Oh, uh, uh, you're before- making me want to watch this stuff, man. <laughs> I now, uh, you know, the Bulldogs, they're the genesis of the Bulldogs, you know, Calgary, but they really didn't team in Calgary. They started teaming at first in New Japan, then took it to Calgary. And then, of course, they went to the WWF, you know, in 1985. And we just talked about this on Between the Sheets um, on a recent show about how the whole WWF tag team landscape of the rest of the 80s basically changed when the British Bulldogs came full-time employees. Because, you know, it was all for years and years and years and years. You know, the WF had their, you know, had tag teams that would come in, but they were mainly heels, like the Samoans and, got, and teams like that. But your babyface tag teams were always two, like two singles guys yep. put together. Now you have established tag teams like British Bulldogs, and and then you just start having more established tag teams like the Killer Bees, like Heart Foundation, Rougeau's, uh, you know, Demolition, you know, and, and all that stuff. You still have your strike force, you know, like Martel and Tito and stuff like that, but it's more of an established tag team system in DF after that. And the Bulldogs were definitely very influential in many ways in the 80s. They were, and as you're as you were speaking, I'm trying to think of who the first WWF babyface tag team was that had a nickname like the Killer Bees. Like I'm thinking maybe Windermere Rotunda was US the Express. Best. Yeah. Okay. But well, yeah, that I was, mean, was 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 Atlas and Rocky properly nicknamed? They were not. Because I remember Atlas they called. Yeah, I, I don't think they ever had proper names. The invaders, but they're, they're a tag, they're a mass tag team. Yeah, the invaders, but I mean, Atlas and Rocky, I think they they were calling themselves like the Soul Patrol, but there was no like real name, the Soul Patrol. Yeah, I, I think Tony Atlas, Tony Atlas and SD Jones sometimes went under the Soul Patrol, and then Steve Travis, and you know what? It's Steve Travis and Rick McGraw. They were Carolina the Connection. Yeah, Carolina Connection. That's right. You're right. but, but that was a that was an anomaly back in like eighty one, eighty two. Now every tag team had a nickname. You know, that you weren't just Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel. That was not happening anymore. You were the killer bees. Absolutely, and the Bulldogs just you know, Dynamite Kid, another guy. You know, just he's underrated, I think, in to, in today's world. I mean, just yes. just so great as a worker when he was at his physical peak, Davy Boy before he got so blown up, you know, you know, what he was doing. I mean, just another great worker, but, uh, yeah, the Cobra, George Takano, um, a guy, he replaced Tiger Mask as the top, you know, mass junior heavyweight in new Japan, but he was so different. I mean, he, he could do dives, but he had like, he had the body. I mean, yeah. he, he was, he was a, just a built guy. He would become a heavyweight and get thicker, but he's a guy that I, I'm still kind of surprised he never became a bigger star in the business. No, and you know what? Japan always seemed to have that ceiling when it came to certain guys, and you, and you just weren't going to break that ceiling. And Takano seemed to fall victim to that. He, yeah, he unmasked, and he had success after he took his mask off. He was an IWGP tag champion with uh, Super Strong Machine. Um you know, he worked for Tenru and SWS and, and did some other things. So he has some success, but yeah, I mean, uh, it, it never came was, together for him the way we would have, we would have liked to it for that. Uh, we would, we would have wanted more from him. Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing too, about the Bulldogs, and I, I hate to keep dragging back. Go ahead. I, I really, you know, maybe I talk too much about this. The WWF, it's almost like it was more luck than planning because I remember spring, summer of 85, like Bret Hart kind of blows in there. He wins matches on all-star wrestling sometimes. Then we have this guy, Davy Boy Smith, who, you know, shows up on all-star wrestling. Then we have the Dynamite Kid. And all of a sudden, the, we, you know, one day they all wake up and say, hey, let's put these two British guys in a tag team together and give them a name. Eventually they got Captain Lou Albano. You know, the day came where they figured it out with Bret Hart. 
He was just a, a middle-of-the-card guy, uh, really doing nothing. He was just on TV. I saw him lose uh, to Don Morocco, middle-of-the-card in Boston one day. And then, you know, the day came where he's with Jimmy Hart and Jim Neidhart, and they're the Hart Foundation, and history was soon to be made. Exactly, yeah. It, it all took, kind of came together by long. accident, you know? It took, and it took, and it took a, you know, a little while before they got their, their group, but then when they got it, the rest is history. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Now, no one does only in Japan type matches. Abdul the Butcher versus Bad News Allen. And, um, yeah, these two were kind of aligned at one point in Japan. But, yeah, I mean, that that is definitely a, a interesting match considering, you know, the matches you just had, all these great junior heavyweight, you know, work rate matches. Then you go to Abby and Bad News. Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, Abby was so always so great in Japan. I mean, he did he did the same thing over and over, but it was always fun. Bad News was one of those guys. I mean, in in like eighty six, eighty seven, when I first started getting Calgary tapes, I was like, why isn't this guy a big star in the United States? Why isn't uh, Jim Crockett Promotions on the phone with this guy right now, saying get on a plane to Atlanta? I mean, the he, he came in in eighty eight in the WWF, got a nice push, got the run against Hogan, but it should. Been a lot more in the United States for him. Yeah, we talked about this on Between the Sheets as well recently about imagine like bad news in Mid South. <laughs> you know, I mean, just imagine him in that in that territory with Bill Watts, and oh man, I mean, he could have been a much bigger star in the U.S., but it just it just wasn't in the cards for him. He you know spent most of his time in Japan and Calgary, so. I mean, he was in Florida at the beginning of 87, like right before that promotion completely fell apart. And, you know, so obviously he was interested in in doing a, a regional promotion in the, in the United States if he's hanging around Florida during their dying days. Yeah, I mean, he, he did he did work there. I mean, got pushed. He was Southern Heavyweight Champion, so he was getting a push. And then Crockett come to town, and that ended for him. <laughs> he was yeah. gone. But here we are, we're in the middle of a wrestling war in the mid-80s, and somehow he fell through the cracks. I know, it's crazy. Yeah. And then there's another one of these only in Japan-type matches. Hulk Hogan and Iron Mike Sharp versus Antonio Noki and Tatsumi Fujinami, (laughs) which you said Fujinami made this a decent match. There you go, Hogan Hogan and Iron Mike Sharp. um, This would have been one of Hogan's early tours over there as the uh, WF champion. And uh, yeah, I mean, you would get you would get some interesting matches with uh, with some of your bigger names like Hogan teaming up with guys like Arm Mike Sharp in Japan. It wasn't like it is in America, you know. They were all you know foreigners over there. Yeah, they could they would interchange in and out. Yeah, I mean, I would see. I, I saw recently Hulk Hogan teaming with Rene Goulet in Japan. It was, you know, it was almost like a St. Louis thing where you had a superstar teaming with a sometimes not even a middle of the card guy, which you know the the regular promotions just did not do. You didn't see Dusty Rhodes teaming with Tim Horner. No, I got one better now. Hulk, I, I see one result: Hulk Hogan team with Kerry Brown. In Japan, I mean, I mean that, that, that's a difference. <laughs> it is amazing Absolutely. that you brought up that name because last night, just last night, I saw Kerry Brown body slam Big John Stud in 1981. I had never seen that before. Wow, there you go. It's like yeah. they weren't, you know, and it's it's crazy that they didn't save that spot. It was just a regular TV match, and he he body slammed Big John Stud. I'm like, hey, where's this 15, where's this fifteen grand? <laughs> exactly. And then after that, we had Cobra versus Hiro Saito, three and three quarter stars. Hiro Saito, another guy who he worked, you know, worked many years, uh, undercard guy. What, what a great hand he was in Japan. Yes. You, you know, he got a line with, with Chono and, uh, you know, was in all the Chono's factions there for years, but. God, what a great worker he was in oh, his day as well. He was fantastic. You know, Japan during this era, you had so many great guys, and guess what? They can't all be in the main event. It almost reminds me of WWE today, quite frankly. Yeah, exactly. Plus, junior heavyweights <laughs> in, in Japan definitely are pigeonholed with each other in a lot of ways too. You know, yes. they, they'll interact with heavyweights in like some tag matches, but that's about it. You know, they are junior heavyweights for, and they hang with them. So uh, that's another thing, too. All right, two guys who aren't junior heavyweights. Harley Race versus Crusher Blackwell from St. Louis. 
where Blackwell won the Missouri State Heavyweight title, which you know to hear the title was still considered the springboard to the NWA title at this point, but the springboard broke when Blackwell landed <laughs> on it. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, and at this point, this was 83, right? Or was 84. It 84? Okay, so St. Louis would, had, was falling apart big time. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just got Larry Matisic's book this week, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it because I want, I want all the juicy details about how St. Louis fell apart. But yeah, at this point, uh, you know, St. Louis is is going down the drain quite quickly. They're no longer part of the NWA. Uh, the WWF has invaded the city, so we're there in trouble. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting to watch. Um, you know, the St. Louis television. You know, I went from you know taping at the uh, the hotel to going to uh, showing the Kansas City matches, and uh, I mean that's a big difference. <laughs> Big difference in every way. Going from going from that, you know, that setting, you know, even if it's, if it's in a, you know, a studio, a TV studio or whatever, you know, going from the setting of KPLR and of course even that point at the Chase Hotel, and then going to Memorial Hall in Kansas City, which is dark, you know, poorly produced. So, I mean, Kansas City yeah. wrestling was so different than St. Louis wrestling, and the people in St. Louis weren't buying the Kansas City stuff. Nope, they sure weren't. And then we have Flair and Carey here in NWA title match from St. Louis, four-star match. Again, Carey Von Erich, I mean, we talk about all the great opponents of Ric Flair over the years, you know, and you can name them all. It seems like Carey is one that also, he gets forgotten as being one of Flair's great opponents. And it wasn't just because of Flair. Carey Von Erich could hold his own in all those matches with Ric Flair and always look really great out. Yeah, I mean, Ricky Steamboat is universally acknowledged as Flair's greatest opponent. Kerry really, truly, you know what, I'm not even going to say he might be number two. He is number two. Yeah, and see, they had great matches just about everywhere they went, and and that was a touring match, whether it be Japan, whether it be St. Louis, whether it be Mid-South, World Class. They had a a great match at Honolulu. I mean, they had great matches just about everywhere they took took the, the match. That Honolulu match was phenomenal. It should be in the match of the decade discussion, and just not many people have seen it because it aired on a financial news network back in Evidence 85. Store. Yeah. yeah, and you know it, it's just become hard to find. I have it somewhere, and it, it's phenomenal. And you're right, the St. Louis match was phenomenal. The New Orleans match was excellent. They, the Texas Stadium match where Kerry won the title was not a good match at all, but then they had a rematch in Fort Worth, I want to say three days later, that was like four and a half stars. Yeah, the, the, the Texas Stadium match is, you know, the, the famous match because of the change, but yeah, that's far from their best match. <laughs> oh, that was one of their worked. worst matches. Yeah, it's funny how that worked out, you know, but that's the memorable match for a reason. Yeah, because yeah. won the belt, but but I mean they had that fantastic match in Fort, uh, not Fort Worth, in Dallas, uh, summer of '82, the one that set up the cage match. I mean, you know, Kerry had so many great matches with Flair, and hey, I give him credit for that. And even if people say, well, it was mostly Flair, okay, but he's he's number two. He's ahead of Terry Funk. He's ahead of Greg Valentine, Roddy Piper, etc. Exactly. And the last match on the tape: Jerry Lawler versus Bobby Eaton in a singles match from Memphis. Uh, this would have been probably about 83, and you said Bobby had the look of a future star at this point. Three stars. Who was he against? Lawler. Oh, okay. All right. I remember that match. And, and yeah, and, and Bobby Eaton, you know, everybody remembers Bobby Eaton as being a member of the Midnight Express. But Bobby Eaton, as a, as a solo, as a singles wrestler, was really good. I mean, of course, he had a team with, the, with you know, Sweet Brown Sugar Coco Ware, but as, his, as a solo guy, Bobby Eaton could, could hold his own with everybody. In 1991, right after uh, Jimmy and Stan quit the promotion, which, by the way, I, I was I spent time with Cornette that week, and oh my God, he was so mad at the NWA. Uh, we were at the Tom Robinson benefit, and when I got there, I learned that Jimmy and Stan had quit the NWA. And, you know, people quit all the time and they go back, and I was in a Denny's with Jim Cornette 
and Brian Hildebrand and Jimmy was livid. I mean, you could tell he'd, he'd had enough over the years. He wasn't going back. And that was the day I learned that Ole Anderson's real name was goddamn fucking Ole because that was the only thing Jim Cornette would refer to him to refer to Ole Anderson as. But yeah, I remember right after that, Eaton started getting a push as a single. He got the TV title. And the fans accepted him as a top guy, and the promotion just never got behind him. Yeah, and I think a lot of that was, you know, Bobby. Bobby was, you know, as far as, you know, promo skills, wasn't on the level of some other guys, even though he could talk. But it just, it, it was, he was pretty much, like I said, the word pigeonhole. He had become pigeonhole by that point as being a tag team wrestler. So it was going to be hard for him to to be perceived as anything else other than that, you know? And of course, you know, once he turned back heel again, he got hooked up an arm and they had a, you know, nice run as a team. And, you know, then he bounced around with different partners that, you know, after that, but, uh, yeah. I mean, he was never going to be Hulk Hogan. He was never going to be Ric Flair, but I always thought that the, you know, after uh, Jimmy and Jimmy and Stan left, uh, they pushed him as a single, and I think he would have been fine in that role. Uh, I remember so looking forward to the Clash of the Champions with Bobby Eaton and, and Ric Flair. And as the t- as the night went on, as the show went on, I'm like, they're not going to give this match any time whatsoever, and they didn't. There was like 12 minutes left when uh, the match started, and it was a massive disappointment. Yeah. All right, let's go to volume 12. And uh, there's a lot of Midnight Express on this tape. So we'll, talk, we'll begin with them as this tape begins with highlights of Jim Cornette's feud with Sunshine and Scott Casey. Yes, the green jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, uh, uh, one of this was uh, uh, just not good. It, it, it was not good. And, and kind of made, made Cornette and the Midnight Express, they just felt kind of I was like afterthoughts in world class a lot of the time. Would you agree with that? I totally agree with that. Um, I mean, Jim Cornette is you know said he hated his time in world class. He got sent there by Bill Watts, um, and they pictured themselves feuding with the Von Erichs, you know, Kerry and Kevin against the Midnight Express. Well, no, they got they wound up in a feud with the Fantastics, which was good. But mostly it was a feud, uh, Jim Cornette versus Sunshine, and so it was like the Midnights against Scott Casey and whoever Scott Casey could get to team with him. And they had some memorably bad angles with all of that. And I remember uh, Jim talking about, you know, how he got stiffed on the on the he and the Midnights got stiffed pay wise on the Texas 1985 Texas Stadium show, and they said, you know, that's it, we're out of here. And he had to call both Fritz and Watts and tell them, hey. You know we're we're heading east. Yeah, and uh, it, it's funny that like if you watch the uh, the first Jim Cornette Midnight Express match on TBS, I don't, I don't know if you remember this or not. I the do. Fans, the fans in the crowd chanting "We want sunshine." It goes. <laughs> I mean, it goes to show you how you know fans in 1985, especially Atlanta, when there was so much wrestling going on there. The fans were watching different products. They weren't just watching one thing. Wrestling fans were watching all the different wrestling that was going on. Yeah, they I, knew. I have had conversations with more than one guy in the business who was like, "Oh, our fans don't watch that wrestling." And I'd be like, "Yes, they do. If they're they like wrestling enough to come out to the arena and pay money to see it, they're sure as hell gonna watch it for free on TV. It ain't that different." Exactly. Exactly. All right, uh, we do have a break in the Midnight Express action for this interesting match. Hey, can I say one thing really quick? Sure. Just to give an example of the fans watch whatever wrestling's out there, in 1983, and forgive me if I've told this story on this show before. It feels like I've told, been a while since I told it in general. Uh, World Class was on here in Boston. It was on Channel 25. started right around the time that Kerry got the, his head slammed in the cage, right after that. And... Uh, September 83, I went to the Boston Garden, and they announced what the next card was going to be, and then they said, and in a special bonus match, S.D. Jones will be facing, dramatic pause, Michael P.S. Hayes, and the place came unglued. 
everyone was cheering, going nuts. We're going to get to see the Freebirds. Are they coming here? You know, are we going to see the Freebirds against, you know, Backland or whoever? Are they going to win the tag team titles? And it was never mentioned again. It wasn't mentioned on TV. The next show came and went, and no Michael Hayes, no mention of him, nothing. And to this day, I think that was a trial balloon that they threw out there. Like, how many fans are actually, how many of our fans are actually watching this product, and should we be worried? Well, the answer in both parts was yes. Yeah, and then they, of course, they come in uh, in '84 for that short stint before they leave again. So, uh, so yeah, yeah that, is, that 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 was one of those things where you would. I saw that for the first time years ago. I was like, wow, I did not know that they were announcing Michael Hayes to appear on the show because I said so. Some I forgot who it was substituted. We talked about this on the on the Boston Garden series that we did. Yes, and uh, it's just weird, very weird, just like this match. All right, Kerry, Kevin, and Mike Von Eric team with gentleman Chris Adams against Terry Gordy, Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, and Axon Butch Reed from Fort Worth uh, in 84. Three of the quarter star match. That's quite the heel team there with all the, that group of guys. Uh, yeah, you have Jim Garvin, the uh, unofficial Freebird at that point, and Butch Reed. I, you know, to this day, I wonder what was supposed to go on in World Class with Butch Reed. Uh, was he just you know brought in for a couple of, of appearances and that's all it was, or was he ever supposed to get a push? I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, he, he would do his little. But a lot of quite a few Mid South guys would do that though in '84. They would come in yes. and wear some shots. You know, in Fort Worth mainly, and they just you know would do some shots here and there in Dallas, but uh, yeah, I mean that's but it, I guess it's just all part of the talent sharing they, that those two promotions had at the time. Let and, me ask. Uh, you, there was a lot of that going on. Yeah. Do you know if Mid South had a television outlet in Dallas, like in eighty four, eighty five? I I do know they ran shows in East Texas. Okay. Um, I don't know if Dallas, if the if the Metroplex could see that. But they probably could, because I know they ran Beaumont, which was Bosch, you know, mainly towards Houston. They ran Marshall, Texas, um, which World Class would run too. So they shared that. They shared that town. Um, so maybe that maybe there there was you know some overlap somewhere. Maybe there was a way that they could get the Miss South Television in Dallas. Okay, because I, I, I know. Have to look on that. You know, I mean, I know Reed made appearances, Terry Taylor, Steve Williams. Uh, I know they brought rock and in- rolls, but yes, exactly. Magnum, Brad Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, they would make appearances mainly at Fort Worth. And then you would yeah. think bring like the uh, Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams against the Von Erichs in singles matches uh, to New Orleans. So they yeah, was- and and they shared Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Okay. Yeah, they shared that. That was that was a joint effort up there. For that year, from 85, 84 and 85. All right, so that totally makes sense. So, yeah, it's just weird that uh, Fritz and Watts were allies for a while, and then in, in 86, they just completely went to war with each other. Uh, Kim Mantel. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the deal. Kim Mantel left to go to the Watts, and the rest is history. Exactly. All right, now we have Midnight's Against Road Warriors from Japan Television, uh, April 86, three and a half stars. That's one thing that I'm, I remember the first time I got to see the, the old Whirlpool Wrestling show from the 80s that would show like uh, house show matches from the United States that you would never see on television here. I was like, wow, yeah. this is like one of those matches. Like, man, because this is, this is like a house show match at one of the TV tapings or something, you know, in, in, in the Carolinas. And like, wow, this is awesome to be able to see some of these matches that you would have never got to see. But here they are on Japan television. Yeah, I, I never understood why Crockett would record those matches and not put them on videotape and sell them. Made no sense. No. They made big money. They made big money. Yeah, they were uh, be- they were so behind when it came to stuff like that. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, I know it. Jerry Long and Dutch Mantell versus Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell won the all-time great grudge matches, four and a half stars. That- it's a shame. It's a shame that we don't have the full Texas death match, though. 
I was oh. just about to say, I mean, what we would give and what we would give just to have them, you know, continue recording and having that. And once again, putting it out on videotape, I mean, it, it would have, I think it was sold huge nationwide. And yeah, I, I have heard from people way, you know, way back in the day who I knew someone who said that they saw that match live in Memphis and they said it was, you know, just one of the all time great matches and that like seven or eight minutes of footage we have, uh, supposedly does not do the whole thing justice. Yeah, you know, they eventually did something like that with the Lawler Island Richview. Yes. But ima- imagine if they would have done something like that with the Dundee Dutch Landell Lawler feud as a commercial tape in that era. That was tremendous. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's 86. Everyone has these VCRs who are dying for to, to have something to put in, inside. Well, they didn't already put out a Lawler tape. They've yes, already had a Lawler tape put out by this point. So it, it definitely easily could have done it, you know, and he was working with Dennis. Dennis Corluzzo was involved in all that. Yeah. So, I mean, that could have happened. They just, they just didn't do it. You know, the analogy I use for both Crockett, I definitely for Crockett, but I guess for uh, Jerry Jarrett as well, is it's like that episode of the Brady Bunch where Peter won't stop tinkering around with the bicycle and just give it back. It's yeah. like they, you know, they made their tapes like, you know, all this fancy artwork and the clamshell packaging and all that. Just give us the tapes. That's all we want. And mm. it's it's easy to do. And they didn't do it. Exactly. All right, now we got some Midnight Express matches. We got three Midnight Express matches versus Bill Wallace and Junkyard Dog. One from the Superdome, which uh, you, you talk about how it had no sound, where Cornette got tarred and feathered after the match, three and a half stars. Then one from Tulsa, where Cornette got diapered. And then one in Houston, where uh, where you noted, if you like this feud, you'll love this tape, as Cornette once again had to strip down to his underpants and get diapered. And you noted, what did Cornette do to piss off Watts anyway? <laughs> Probably nothing. I think he didn't do anything to piss Watts off. He, everyone just saw money in it. And I mean, think about it. The Midnight Express, you know, Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry, two guys really talented, but they were kind of middle of the card Memphis guys until they came into Mid-South as the Midnight Express and they're main eventing the Superdome. Wow. And against the two big guns, Watts and JYD. And that was a huge money making feud for that territory. Yeah, and this is Cornette, I feel like, at his best in, in Mid-South when he wasn't funny. Or he was funny, but he was funny in, in just like a really mean, nasty way. He was so despicable. Yeah, it, it was not Crockett Cornette, to be sure. I mean, it was a different type of Cornette. And, uh, yeah, these these teams had some tremendous matches, absolutely. And and then, then you had their first few on here, really. Uh, Manatee and wrestling too. You had them in Houston where at great heat crowds going nuts. Cornette needed security to get away. Four star match. Then, uh, uh, midnights against Mr. Wrestling two and John King from, uh, Shreveport where two teams with John King to prove how good he is. Or as you say, in other words, he's turning. This is during the Manatee theme. And then uh-huh. next two officially turns heel in the match, walking out of Magnum, leaving him to be strapped. That's where they lost the titles. So, uh, yeah, there's three matches involving the TA Wrestling 2 angle, and that that's their first big their first big angle and feud. They win the titles, but they were, I mean, even though they did the, you know, had the tar and feather and stuff and this and the other, the big story here was TA and 2, and Mr. Wrestling 2 turning heel. And, God, what a great, great angle this whole thing was. I feel like the two versus Magnum TA storyline is is the the single greatest storyline in the history of the business. It's you know first it's Mr. Wrestling Two helping out this guy who has a lot of potential and he's young but he's he's just not getting over the getting over the hump. Then he gets over the hump and M- Mr. Wrestling Two becomes jealous and Magnum TA is fiercely loyal to him uh, to a fault. And then at the end of the day, Mr. Wrestling 2 has a new protege, Mr. Wrestling 3, although Mr. Wrestling 2 started talking about being Mr. Wrestling 1 because he's not number 2 to anything, but let's not go down that road. And (laughs) Mr. Wrestling 3, Hercules Hernandez, was nowhere near as loyal to Mr. Wrestling 2 as Magnum TA was. If you don't have that, please seek it out. It's on the WWE Network, everybody. It's it's, Yeah, all the entire... Uh, yeah, the, oh yeah, all of 84, 85. Yeah, it's all on there now. 
And uh, if you've never seen, never seen the television from Mid South in that era, yeah, you got to deal with, uh, especially in '84. You know, when they start doing the music videos and stuff, you got to deal with the crappy overdubs. But you get the you get the best first quad you're, you're ever going to get of this stuff, and it's just it's tremendous. It is absolutely tremendous. You have to watch it if you've never I- seen it personally feel that Mid-South 1984 was the best year any territory ever had. I mean, I mean you, can, you can make that argument, no doubt. You can make the argument, no doubt, in every way. I mean, that, that, it's right up there among the top of the list, you know. there's. I mean, I, we could talk about some other ones, but that, I mean, it's right there. It's it's definitely in, the, in line. That in is mine for one. Yeah, I mean... It's definitely in the line for sure. I mean, yeah, you could even say '86 UWF is right there, you know, or '86 Crockett, and there's some other, you know, years with '89 NWA, what have you. But yeah, '84 Mid South, it's, it's definitely, definitely it's right my, there in the hunt. My no personal doubt. number one, but every, everyone's got their own opinion. It's my personal number one. Absolutely. And speaking of Midnight's versus Rock and Roll Express in their first ever meeting on television. In 1984, which is interesting, they had a TV match when they weren't feuding with each other, because the Midnight's had transitioned really from TA and Two, and are now work starting to watch JYD thing. Rock and Rolls, their first feud was with Crush Khrushchev and Nikolai Volkov. Yep. In Mid South, so they didn't really start flaring their feud up until after the Watch JYD feud. So. Yeah, it wasn't immediate. No, just just was, like just like it wasn't at Crockett. It wasn't immediate. No, you know, it wasn't. It, it took six months. Yeah, before they hooked it up. You would think Rock and Roll Express against Midnight Express was the most organic thing ever, but both times they made us wait, and it was worth the wait. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, yeah, this is a really good little TV match. Just a precursor of things to come in that feud. Absolutely, oh, yeah. absolutely, and. Um, yeah, the Mid South and then built the rock and rolls up so big that they, they showed up on television for the first time. The, the girls are going crazy for them. That's some, that's a lot of stuff you wouldn't get in today's wrestling. You know, the power of the music video and, and back then was was much bigger than anything you know you could really do. You know, in these times, I mean, it was crazy how big they were. I remember the first time I saw the Rock and Roll Express make their debut at the Irish McNeil Boys Club. Now, mind you, they the only time they had been seen were, were through the mu- music videos, and the crowd went wild over them. And I mean wild. And they, the same thing in Crockett. They were over before they even – they were over like crazy before they even stepped foot in the arena. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing times. And then we have one more Midnight's match. Midnight's against Hector Guerrero and El Bracero from Houston on March 84. And you talk about how underrated Hector was, three and three-quarter stars. Hector yeah. Guerrero was highly underrated. I, I have gone on so long. I mean, any time someone saw my website, you know, I, even I admitted it. Like, you couldn't bring up uh, the Guerreros without me saying, you know, the, this should have been a major superstar team, either in the WWF or, better yet, in the NWA where they were a better fit. I mean, there should have been a major Rock and Roll Express versus Chavo and Hector Guerrero feud. They should have been a, a mainstay in JCP. I understand a lot of people didn't like Chavo. Um, he was hard to get along with, uh, but you know, make it work, guys. Come on, this is a, a phenomenal tag team. Yes, absolutely. And they did have a Mid South feud, and that's on the WWE Network. If you want to see that too, so uh, go ch- check that out because that's some really good TV matches. But uh, absolutely, that would have been a. And Jim Cornette was managing the Guerreros just to make it even better. Yeah, that one. He managed that one match where he's wearing a sombrero. The the first time he comes back on the first time he's on TV in Mid South without the mask on. When he comes back uh, for one TV taping, the, t- the manager Guerrero's. It's great. That's right. Great stuff. All right, now we have a little respite here from the Midnights. We got Tiger Mask, Misawa under the hood this time, and Great Kabuki versus Buzz Sawyer and Lapierre from all Japan, 1984, where you talk about how Kabuki spent a lot of time in the corner, three and a half stars. That is quite the tag match there. Buzz Sawyer and Lapierre. Yeah, really. The team. Good Lord. So that's an interesting match. And Masawa's Tiger Mask. I mean, it was a different version of Tiger Mask, but from Sayama, because he wasn't doing all the dynamic stuff that Sayama did. But you go back and watch Masawa working that gimmick, and he, you know, you watch Masawa when he's in all Japan, 
you know, in the nineties as, you know, the triple crown got champion, this and the other. I mean, it, it's amazing to watch Misawa work before he started getting really broken down on stuff he usually could do. Oh, yeah. And, you know, as an aside, I remember watching AWA wrestling in 1986 and Tiger Mask made an appearance. This was the uh, uh, the Wrestle Rock show. Wrestle Rock, yeah. And I remember watching it and being, you know, like, oh, my God, this guy sucks now. He's not doing the stuff that he used to do. <laughs> and then I'd be like, wait a minute. And he got way taller. What's going on here? <laughs> because, you know, I had no way of knowing that they had yeah. a new Tiger Mask. Yeah, exactly. You're right. I mean, it wasn't something that was a well-known thing in America unless you read the sheets. Yeah, yeah you're, you're absolutely right. I, I'll tell you what. I wish I had a time machine where I would have just taken a what a dollar fifty gamble on one of the newsletters that were advertised in like the Ring magazine. I would have gotten ahead of the game. Oh, I want a time machine to give me a DVD recorder or something, man. Oh, so yeah. I can go back in time and record television. Oh, oh, that's a whole nother story. All right, Terry Gordon versus Jumbo Sharuda from All Japan, October 29, 1984. Bloody match. Michael Hayes runs in for the DQ, where you know they used to have those in Japan, three and a half stars. They had them in Japan all the time, back in the 80s. DQs and countouts. It was crazy how many DQ and countout finishes they had until I think it was All Japan in 88. 1990. Nine, it was 90. It was that late. Okay. They're just like, yeah. okay, every match is a clean finish from now on. And it's funny. Now, we used to have in America, everything used to be a, a you know, a, a screw, screw job finish uh, in the 80s. And now everything is more or less a clean finish, and people complain about that too. It's like yeah, all these it, guys do is trade wins. It's like, come on, what do you want? And, and then and then you'll get you'll get a screw job finish and they're like oh I hate these you know what what kind of finish do you want sometimes I, <laughs> you go, I mean it's just complain to complain that's basically what it is a lot for a lot of people yeah right, I, you know, it used to be now we have a forum to complain which is you know the internet which is fine and I look back and I'm like wait a minute people used to use the newsletters to complain and we used to never complain before we started getting the newsletters for the most part pretty much. Next is Teddy Vice for Junkyard Doll, June 23rd, 1982. A scientific match that features DiBiase's original heel turn. Yeah, you talk about something that really comes out of nowhere. Because that, that was something that they, they never really foreshadowed. They, he was going to turn on Junkyard Doll, but then he pulls the, the glove out, the handball glove, which wasn't black at that time, it's white, out of his tights, and he decks JYD and pins him and wins the North American title. What phenomenal storytelling, once again, by Mid-South. It was originally supposed to be Ted DiBiase versus Bob Roop for the North American title. And Ted DiBiase said, look, if if I can't go out and beat Bob Roop for the North American title, I will leave town. Well, so we're – okay, next week, Bob Roop versus Ted DiBiase. Either Ted DiBiase wins the North American title or he leaves Mid-South. And then they start the, the show – Guess what? JYD has won the North American title, and now Ted DiBiase has to face his best friend in a no DQ match, where either he wins the title or you know has to leave Mid South. I mean, JYD was Ted DiBiase's best man at Ted DiBiase's wedding, and it, you know just an, an insane quick buildup. And Ted, out of desperation, so that he does not have to leave Mid South, just you know KOs him with one punch because he's got a loaded glove. Exactly, and then DiBiase, who had been, you know, kind of like a soft-spoken babyface in a lot of ways throughout his career, you know, speaks softly, carries big stick, that type, but then he turns heel, and then that's when we get Ted DiBiase, and he's never the same at that, you know, he just explodes. I remember the next week, Ted DiBiase was wrestling, I want to say, Tom Jones, I could be wrong on that one, but I think it's Tom Jones. And Ted starts wrestling, you know, as a good guy. The fans are are still mad at him for what he did last week. And Ted DiBiase pulls out the loaded glove and KOs Tom Jones. And he just has this sneer on his face. And and Bill Watts sold it perfectly. Look at that face. Look at the defiance on Ted DiBiase. And we were off running. I think, you know, I, I keep I don't mean to speak in like everything was the greatest. Mid South eighty was the greatest. This was the greatest. I Mid South Ted DiBiase is the greatest heel I've ever seen. 
It's awesome. It was tremendous. Absolutely. So much great stuff. Again, WWE Network. Everything's on there. Go check it out. Yeah. And it's just like uh, this stuff. Midnight Express. We're back with them. Midnight Express versus Brickhouse Brown and George Wells in a match. And then Midnight Express versus Rock and Rolls in New, in New Orleans. Uh, a good one from the two of the best teams ever. Three and three quarter stars. October 1st, 84, which is interesting because that's Rock and Roll Express' first match back in the territory after losing a Loser League Town match to the Midnight Express three months earlier. They did a 90-day Loser League Town. They come back first night in and regain the Mid-South Tag Titles in New Orleans. And so there you go. And, and, and of course, Midnights are going to be going to world class. So that's the way to get, you know, get the belts off of them and get them on their way soon to world class. But uh, Brickhouse Brown and George Wells. JYD's left, uh, gone to WWF. Watts was just crushed on that one, you could tell. And... He's, he's trying to scramble to find his next black superstar on as a babyface. Brickhouse Brown, they, they bring him in. They try him. and It doesn't really work at the beginning. And then they bring George Wells in, you know, as Master G. And he starts feuding with Butch Reed. And you know, he gets over and away, but he gets a big head. And then when you start seeing him doing, you start seeing him doing jobs on television. Like, this is one of them. He does a job on television here. You know, okay. This guy is going down quick, and it's not too long before he goes to WF. But uh, what are your thoughts on George Wells? It's Master G here in Miss South. I thought he was absolutely awful. I thought it was – I mean the densest mark in the world could see through what was going on, that JYD was gone and that Watts was you know, desperately bringing one guy in after another, uh, trying to replace someone that it was irreplaceable. Um, I, per- I think – JYD leaving Mid-South in 84 was was less of a blow than people make it out to be historically. He had already peaked. Um, I mean he had had a five-year run as their top babyface, and usually five years is when people start getting tired of a guy. Bruno Sammartino was the exception, um, but you know – Usually after five years, you need someone else, and they had this someone else right there. It was Butch Reed. Um, I, I always, I think that generally speaking, in order to be a major superstar babyface, you have to be a heel first. That's part of the growth process. And Reed had turned on JYD. It was a great turn, great storyline. Butch just didn't want to be number two anymore, and now it was time to turn him back. And we talked about this once. Uh, we went over Butch Reed's career. It just mm-hmm. never got over the way it should have, and for for a, a lot of small reasons, not one big one. Exactly. And we talk about how pissed off Watts was. So we get Teddy Biasa versus Tito Santana, a match from Houston in 83. And they showed this where Watts redoes commentary, where he uses the match as his soundboard to go off on the WWF, where he talks about how this is proof that WF Center Continental Champions, no match for Teddy DiBiase. <laughs> it was an all-action back-and-forth match where DiBiase used a little good to get 10, four stars. And... Okay, when you when you watch this stuff, you see Watts, you know, rip it on the WF guys. You can take this as one of two ways: either you're, you know, you're like, yeah, he's take he's sticking it to WF, or you're like, wow, you're coming off as petty and, you know, just I don't know, you're just you come off as je- either jealous and petty or something like that. Where, where do you where would you stand on how Bill Watts was acting about WF this time? On the former, I was like, yes, go get him because he is the underdog in a wrestling war. And if you have footage of Ted DiBiase getting pinned – excuse me, Tito Santana getting pinned in, in by Ted DiBiase, you air it and you, you do the commentary. If King Kong Bundy is headlining WrestleMania – uh, I think this happened before he headlined WrestleMania, but he was a big star in the WWF, and you've got footage of Steve Williams pinning him, and you, you know, you, <laughs> I mean, Bill Watts goes out and he goes, and Steve Williams had no problem with that overweight pachyderm King Kong Bundy, and <laughs> to me, you do it. I mean, WWF didn't have to do it, but Mid South did. Yeah, and uh, you know, Ole had done it first in Georgia in, in, in early '84. But, you know, Watts was one of the most famous ones in doing. And, of course, and then you got, you know, WCW would do it years later with this is where the big boys play, where they were sort of deaf guys getting beat by WCW guys and stuff like that. But yeah. 
I mean, I'm, 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 I'm with you. Why not? I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you're, you're in a fight, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do, but I can understand the other rationale that some fans might have where, ah, oh, come on, you don't have to do this. You know, why are you worried about them? You know, I, I, I get that, but I'm more inclined to be on your side on this one myself personally. So I personally think that one of the biggest biggest mistakes JCP made was they never acknowledged on TV that the WWF even existed, that they didn't acknowledge that they were in a wrestling war. Um, you needed to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, you're right. All right, and to close out, we have uh, Jimmy Hart. You have some great interviews and promos from him in Memphis in 83. And we have a fabulous one versus Bill Dundee and Jim Morris, a.k.a. Harley – well, he's Big Jim here. Then becomes Harley Davidson at, after this in Memphis and, of course, becoming Hillbilly Jim. And it's amazing to see Hillbilly Jim pre-Hillbilly Jim uh-huh. because we, we always knew him as Hillbilly Jim. But I've, I've been watching some, you know, a good bit of WWF from late 84, early 85, and – you talk about an amazing way of telling a story. They got the Hillbilly Jim character over so hard by just having him sit in the crowd. And then, of course, he had the interaction with Piper on Piper's Pit. And all the thing that led up to him and his training with Hulk Hogan and Hogan giving him his pair of boots and all that stuff. And they had Hillbilly Jim so red hot, you know, as, as, a, as an act. And then God bless Jim. He goes and slips and falls to San Diego and tears his ACL. And he's never really the same after that. But good Lord, imagine how big he could have been if he would have stayed healthy. You know, Chris, what you're saying is so true. And people forget or kind of brush it off. I went to the Boston Garden when Hillbilly Jim debuted there. Now, Notice I didn't say Little Rock, Arkansas. It's Boston. You you know, you think we're not going to cheer hillbillies. He got a huge ovation from the Boston crowd when he debuted. I remember when they were doing the thing on TV. Oh, there's that big hillbilly in the crowd again. I was like, I recognize that guy. Didn't he used to work in Memphis? <laughs> and then, you know, he's at every TV taping. I'm like, okay, how is this even possible? I know that, you know, these the, the two areas that they're taping in are far apart so but you know but it, it worked and people you know I, I think people they they say okay well he couldn't work and the, the gimmick to them was dumb this that and the other thing but you're absolutely right he was over like crazy uh before he slipped and, and tore his acl and then they've got him managing uncle elmer so you're watering the gimmick down now and yeah i mean what happens if you know it's one of the greater what ifs what if he never slipped on a wet floor in san diego and snapped his leg he easily could have been the number two behind hulk hogan for a long time absolutely absolutely and that's not me saying oh i love this guy this gimmick so much it's like hey it got over exactly you can see it with your own eyes yeah. <laughs> it's just that simple well all right so that's it for this show um john real quick go ahead and plug uh, your podcast and everything else you got going on okay yeah if you uh enjoyed me on this show i invite you to listen to me every week on the stick to wrestling podcast uh give us six it goes 60 minutes a week we leave it at that give us 60 minutes and we will give you perhaps indeed a raw bone podcast like sweet hansen <laughs> and vince mcmahon saying perhaps indeed left and right in the 80s <laughs> Notwithstanding. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> ne- nevertheless, be that as it may. <laughs> Let's not the go there. Things. That was his 90s thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, check John out on all his uh, things he's got going on. So, Oh, yeah, and if you'd like, follow me on Twitter. Uh, just put in the search uh, – put John McAdam in the search engine and follow the guys uh, with the guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. I don't stick to wrestling on my Twitter, but it's mostly wrestling. And, of course, the Pro Wrestling and Whatever Facebook page as well. Oh, yeah. So there's that. So, yeah, that, that's good stuff. I'm, me and John will do another show in the, in the near future. And when we do that, again, we'll start with Volume 13, where we have more Tiger Mask stuff. Lots of Tiger Mask matches on this one. And, yeah, even though this is an 80s show, this tape has some 90s matches. Uh-oh. So we'll be, talk- we'll be talking about that. And then we'll have another uh, Volume 14 that we'll get to, which is all from 1983, 
as we go to AEWA, Florida, featuring Roddy Piper in Florida, some Southwest, Memphis, and uh, some more Mid-South. We have a lot of stuff we people we talk about on this show. So all that more next time when we hook it up. And we'll talk about John's thoughts on the apocalypse. Or should I say, apocalypse. Oh, Memphis. no. <laughs> so all that more next time on the Wrestler from the 80s uh Serious on Exile Bastry. John, thank you as always for being on the show. Thank and you we for will having me. do this me. again very soon. Oh, definitely. And yes, yeah, spoiler, I did not like the apocalypse thing. I thought it was very dumb. But yeah, thank you for having me on. And go Vols, beat Indiana. There you go. This is Chris saying go dogs and so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Oh.